0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. What a privilege it is to be here and to stand in this place. And uh, it's just an honor. But I tell you what honors me more than anything else in my life is the way that you love our kids. What you do week in and week out to care for them and love them Speaks uh, more than you can possibly know to us. So, yeah, I stand here in this spot where theologians occupy normally. You have more theologians per capita in this congregation than probably any congregation I've ever been in in my life. And so, um, they've asked me to talk about the gospel. You know, it's just a little subject; shouldn't take too long, right? And so in my first hour, I would like to... What? What? Celeste said I had two hours, so I'm just saying. When I say the word, the gospel, what do you hear? Uh, What comes to your mind? If I were to hand you this Bible and ask you, turn to somewhere and find me something about the gospel, where would you immediately turn? Uh, You'd say, well, Larry, the gospels, duh. You know, that's why they're called the gospels. Uh, but often we have the idea that a few simple scriptures sum up what the gospel is. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only begotten Son. There you go, that's the gospel. But most of the time our view of the gospel is centered in the idea of our sin, Jesus' sacrifice, and the atonement that was purchased for us on the cross of Calvary. Right? That's where it centers, but... Uh, and, and when we have this tendency to look at Scripture, but it's really so much larger than that. And we have a, an idea that we take these glasses and we kind of read this Bible through the lens of how is this all about me? And when we do that, we miss really the bigger picture of what's going on in Scripture. Uh, and so when I say the word gospel, do you hear a religious word? Do you hear a churchy word? Uh, does it just kind of express some theological idea or concept? So this morning we're going to look at the gospel according to scripture uh, and have us see what it looks like. How about we start in the very first of these gospels to be written, the gospel of Mark. How about just the first verse? How about just the first five words of the first verse? Let's look at this. Am I on? Apparently, whoop! There it is. Okay, the beginning of the gospel, ESV. The beginning of the good news or good message here that we have in uh, the NIV. The word we have here is euangelion in the Greek. And what Mark uses here is not a religious word but a political word. This is a word that Mark would have ripped from the political headlines of the day. Because it always speaks in Greek and Hebrew scripture only ever describing the action of a king that resulted in the radical changing of the state of reign and rule over a given domain or its occupant. So let me show you how this would have worked. And this thing is just not working. This is going to go yeah, so do you just want me to say slide? Okay, I'll say the word slide. My buddy Andrew is going to come up here and help me with this. Let me show you how this works. All right. I'd like to introduce you to King Andrew. <laughs> okay, right here, buddy, right there. See, this, this is King Andrew, and from the center aisle over, this is your kingdom. That's your domain. These are your peeps. <laughs> There you go. And they love King Andrew because he is a good and benevolent king. He doesn't overtax them when they're in need. He gives them stuff. He just says, I want to be a great king, okay? And so he is awesome, and they love him, and you love them, right? Now, I am evil King Larry, and this is my kingdom. And I rule over you, and I tax you. I will put you into slavery to build my stuff. If you don't believe me, I will cut your head off, and you'll die. These people hate me. Okay, but they are under my rule and reign. They can't stand. They're scared to death. And I use terrorism, the fear of death, to hold power over them. Okay, and so one day I say, Ah, look at King Andrew's kingdom. Look at all of his people. He could, I could wipe him out. And I go in and I just cart him off <laughs> like this. Okay, and I give him to my people. They're supposed to cut his head off. I don't know if they do. But now you are my kingdom, all of you. And so what I will do is I will write a proclamation. And I will send out people known as evangelists to deliver The good news, which is good news for me, but it's not good news for you. But it is the rule and reign that I have established my dominion over you. But Andrew's not dead. He rebuilds his armies. And he comes back. And oh no, there's Andrew and I run. Okay, but he defeats me and drives me off and he cuts my head off. Or has somebody do it because he's so nice he wouldn't do that, right? Okay, so now... What you will do is you will get some evangelists and they will go out to each of these villages and they will proclaim the gospel, the euangelium. Okay? And all that is, give him a hand. Aren't you awesome? Thank you. So, all that is left to do is to repent and to believe the gospel. Okay? Easy for you guys, not so good for you, because you remember how mean I am. I may not be dead. Okay, and so the evangelists come and they proclaim, and you're like, I don't know, he's still pretty mean. We're used to living in this death and destruction. We don't know how to live in freedom. But here's the problem, slide, okay? So the truth doesn't change just because you don't want to hear it okay and these guys at the bottom had a real problem with this the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness of mankind because all men know of God God has made it clear right this is what Romans 1 is about and what they do is suppress the truth by their wicked pride. okay and so let's look at the first words uh, the, the, the rest of this about Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ in the Greek, okay? So this, uh, what, what does that mean? It means the anointed one. It is a title. I have news this morning. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Did you know that? It is a title. It is a kingly title. In Hebrew scriptures, the word Messiah is always used of priests and kings, but mostly used pointing to a future leader who would be both priest and king and then it finishes son of God yet some early manuscripts omit that as if this title is enough to convey the idea and then Mark goes on it is written where else would it be written the prophet Isaiah I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way so here comes John the Baptist and he says I'm not the one but the one who comes after me I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes I baptize you with water but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit okay and so uh, slide at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He was baptized in the Jordan River just as Jesus is coming up out of the water. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What do you think? Are these just random words? Is this God saying, hey, everybody, I'd just like to introduce you to God Jr.? (laughs) I don't think so. Here, God's words are packed with echoes from the Hebrew Scriptures. So let's break verse 11 down here. This first line is from Psalm 2. God presents or promises king who would come and do two things. What? He would rule and he would confront evil among the nations. Slide. Uh, Why do the nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? The kings of the earth form a united front. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and His anointed one. They say, let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. He angrily speaks to them and terrifies them in His rage, saying, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill the king said i will announce the lord's decree he said to me you are my son this very day i have become your father does jesus ever call himself in scripture the son of god yeah absolutely even demons call him everybody ends up calling him that but what does he call himself more often than that The son of man. In fact, 106 times in the gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. You ever wonder why that is? Well, here is why. Slide. My vision. At night, Daniel says, there before me is one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Who has authority, glory, and sovereign power? God alone. These are divine attributes that only belong to God. Jesus has them and what happens? All the nations, all the peoples, every language worship Him and His dominion. His kingdom will be an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus invokes this title, this kingdom title and Position 106 times, this is not God, Jr. 106 times, Jesus says, no, I am God in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 1, slide. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at various times, in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, literally, in Son, incarnate, incarnate person this next line slide with you I am well pleased this is from Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1 slide this is my servant whom I strengthen he is my chosen one who pleases me I have put my spirit upon him he will bring justice to the nations Not only does this refer to the Messiah who would suffer and die on our behalf, but to the true King of all kings that will reign in power forever and ever. And what do you look at in Scripture as the very first words coming out of Jesus' mouth? Look down in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, slide. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. It is at hand. It has arrived. And what does he say? Repent and believe the good news, the evangelion. A couple of questions for you this morning. First, if you had to summarize Jesus' message, all his teaching, all his words, what do you think he talked about the most? Greatest command, love your neighbors yourself, forgive one another, don't worry, birds don't worry, why should you worry? Is that what Jesus taught? Was he just a great moral teacher? Was he just a good example to follow? We kind of like that message, don't we? Because we have this continual, in the West at least, this continual driving narrative of moral progress. If everybody will just act better, things will get better. But do we see that? In Scripture, if you guessed kingdom, then you're correct. It's always what he talked about. Hands down, no other subject even comes close. In fact, in the 28 chapters of the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the kingdom almost 60 times. That's one and a half times per page. Everything he said was about this kingdom. In fact, all of those moral and scandalous teachings are not at all the core of what Jesus said. They're always ancillary and subordinate to some larger idea. And so the behaviors like love your enemies and bless those who persecute you only make sense if there's some other ruling paradigm in place. Something has happened All people will know that you belong to me because why? You love one another. John 13.35, it's not merely an example. This is a command to all who would enter the kingdom. Our life in Christ is not imitation. Our life in Christ is participation of His life in us, the hope of glory. So what about this word kingdom? We usually think about a geographical place. From this border to this border, this is my kingdom. We outlined that in this room. Is that what that means? Not necessarily. In Hebrew and Greek, it's always about the action of a king. Let's break down the word kingdom. Okay, king. We know what a king is. We know what a king does. What about this suffix, dom? Comes from the word domaz. Okay? And it refers to dominion or power or authority or a state of being. We use it in words like freedom, stardom, martyrdom. Okay? That's what all that means. It is not geography, but it's a present state of reality. Second question Where does all this kingdom language start in this Bible? Right here in Mark? somewhere in the gospels how about the first page of the first chapter of Genesis right here in chapter 26 slide then God said let us make mankind in our image this is the beginning of the biblical basis of the doctrine of the Trinity we see this plurality or tri-unity where we get the word Trinity God is one in three persons let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule kingdom language. Do you see that? Over the fish, in the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the wild animals, over everything that moves on the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them. He blessed them. And He said, be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it like it's been placed under your feet. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over every living creature in the ground. Now, what does that mean? You get up in the morning, you go out in the front yard, and you see a flock of birds and say, I rule you. <laughs> or if you're a manager at Starbucks, do you walk in and you're running your crew and say, I rule you guys today? No, you understand that you're subordinate to somebody else. And that person is subordinate to somebody else. We are to reflect the rule and reign of God's image in our life. We are made in His image and He has given us a royal task to be caretakers of His creation. He is the King and we reflect that authority in our life. Now look at this, verse 31. Slide. God saw everything that He made, and what was it? Very good. In the beginning, who defined what was good and evil? Man or God? God set the definition of what is good and what is evil. So there they are in this perfect place, in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with each other. They are naked and not ashamed, and it was very good. So what went so horribly wrong in Genesis chapter 3? Well, there's this tree of life, there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there's this non-human serpentine cr- cr- creature that represents rebellion against God, defiance of everything, and so we have this set up, and we, we, we look at this, and it's something we like to call free will. Or the freedom of choice. And he holds out this freedom of choice and says, No, God's wrong. You won't surely die. Instead, you'll be like God, having the power to decide for yourself what's really good and what's really evil. And in that moment, the only thing created in the image of God, these bearers of this Imago day, seize that power and that control for themselves. And all of a sudden they realize they're naked and they are ashamed. They have gone from being completely God-aware to become completely self-aware. The rule and reign in their life has been radically altered. Now they are under the control of the power of sin and death. Going on to Genesis 4, what I like to call the Cain project. Cain murders his brother. He tries to cover it up. God casts him out. What does Cain do? Well, he immediately goes and builds a city, his own little kingdom, which become quickly evil and corrupt. His sons do the same thing, all of which become evil and more evil and more evil than the last. And we finally come to Genesis 6, and God has had it up to here. Slide. God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on all the earth that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. There's nothing else but evil. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, all the animals I regret that I've ever made them. So God says, no more. Now I am going to decide what is good and evil. And our sovereign God did it. He wiped evil from the face of the earth. But, slide, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the story continues. And so here we go to Genesis 9. They land on the ark. God makes a covenant with Noah. There's a rainbow. And he says, I will not bring my wrath again until the last day. That's what the rainbow's for. But there's also this part of the covenant. Slide. He says, I will now demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? Because they are created in the image of God. God has made mankind. Here's this Imago Day Once again, we are bearers of this royal image bearing a royal task and God says there is now a new reign and rule over humanity. Here we go, Noah lands, he plants a vineyard, he makes wine, he gets drunk, he gets naked, his son Ham sees him, he casts him out dividing father against son and brother against brother and then in chapter 10 what do we read? This table of nations So Noah's sons build all these cities, kingdoms, nations, cities, places like Sodom. You know what went on there, right? Places like Babylon, evil upon evil, killing and distorting the very image of God. And here we come to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 and this Tower of Babel is really this iconic culmination of the fall that happened back in Genesis 3 slide come let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves ah and this tower of Babel represents really one giant iconic up yours God from mankind and it stands as a symbol that leads and foreshadows this first world superpower that is going to be Egypt. And so God says, nope. Ping. And he scatters them through language to protect themselves, to keep themselves from destroying themselves. But the story continues. We flash through all of these uh, chapters to God's covenant with Abraham. Where God did what he did in the very beginning, he creates a people where there was no people who would share his rule and reign by submitting to his sovereign rule and authority. And so that doesn't go so well. Again, Abraham and Sarah don't believe God is going to do what he promised. They decide to take control and wow, just wow. And so this entire nation of Israel ends up in bondage for 400 years to Egypt... The world's first superpower, just like God told him it would happen when he made the blood covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. We blow through the remaining 35 chapters of Genesis, the first 10 chapters of Exodus. A whole lot of really wild stuff goes on that I'd love to talk about, but we don't have time this morning. And we arrive at Genesis, or Exodus 11, and this is the showdown between the kingdom of mankind and the kingdom of God. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the planet. He is worshipped as God. He calls himself God. He sees all of the world created in his own image. Monuments, statues everywhere. And Egypt is concerned with what every other superpower in the world has ever been concerned about. National security and the economy. God says to Moses, here's what you're going to do. Slide. You're going to take a perfect spotless lamb and you're going to place its blood on the doorway of your dwelling. Slide. My wrath is going to pass over those who belong to me. And Jesus is approaching John the Baptist and John sees Jesus walking across the horizon and he says, slide. Behold. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Let's have a look at how this goes down in the book of Luke, chapter 4. Right after God the Son is baptized, He is immediately led by God the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days, without food, He takes the full-on frontal attack from Satan for 40 straight days. Days. What is He doing? He is replaying 40 years of Israel's history in the wilderness where they reject God. They don't trust God. But Jesus is faithful and He is true and He succeeds. The battles over our souls culminated at the cross, but the battle was won or lost in that wilderness. Jesus succeeds. On down in Luke 4, Jesus leaves the wilderness. He comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's invited to read. Why? Because he's from the line of kings in David. And he opens the roll up, scroll of what? Isaiah, always slide. And he unrolls it to this. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord, Sovereign Lord, is on me because He has anointed me. Anointed one, Messiah, the Christ. This title, to the poor. Why the poor? Well, in Hebrew culture, being poor was not just about money. It was about uh, the people that were just in low social status. This is about women. This is about children. This is about the sick. People on the margins of society. Surprisingly, this it could include people that had money, like tax collectors. Everybody hated them. When you find that on down in Luke, Zacchaeus, that's exactly what that is. I came to seek and save the lost. Salvation has come to this house today. And so, he continues reading. The Lord has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captors, the release of darkness from the prisoners, to proclaim The year of the Lord's favor and the new rule and reign, the day of vengeance, and to comfort those who mourn. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus said, and he hands the scroll back. He sets down, every eye is on him, and you could have heard a pin drop. He was freeing them from their sickness, from their past, from their shame. He's freeing them to become a part of God's kingdom that Jesus said he's bringing into reality. And he says, repent and believe the good news. Then after this, in Luke 5, Jesus appoints 12 from among his disciples. That number 12 is very intentional, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Part of that that we blew through in the back half of Genesis. But this group of disciples Jesus called is such a ragtag bunch of guys. We have fishermen. We have a tax collector who worked for the Roman occupation. We have a zealot who fought against the Roman occupation. There is no way these guys are ever going to get along. But Jesus is calling them. Inside of his kingdom to reconcile with each other, to reconcile with God, to live in unity. So then in Luke chapter 6, Jesus does the same thing that he does in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And he goes and he teaches the people and he says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is what? The kingdom of God. <clears throat> Blessed are you who mourn. You'll be comforted. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. Blessed are you when people hate you because of me. This is a radical teaching. It's an upside-down kingdom. Jesus is telling His disciples to love their enemies, to be strangely generous even to people they don't like. Forgive and show mercy. Jesus not only taught this, He did it. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And 700 years before this happened on the cross, God said, This is going to how it's go down. Isaiah 52. Slide. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know it is I who foretold it. Oh yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news. Say to Zion. Your God reigns. Isaiah 53. This proto-evangelium, this first gospel, no less than 11 direct messianic prophecies in this one chapter. It begins with a question. Slide. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Everybody. But who has believed it? Here is the truth and the reality of the established fact of the gospel. Slide. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed on Him by His wounds. We are healed. The rule and sovereign reign of all humanity has been radically altered. And this is the good news. Colossians 1 slide. For God is pleased to have all of His Fullness dwell in the person of Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Things in heaven and things on earth. Making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me in this life that I live in this flesh. I live by one thing and that is faith in the son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. As John 1 John chapter 1 tells us the one who existed before the beginning is the one that we have seen. The one that we have heard, we have seen him with our own eyes. We've touched him with our own hands. He is Jesus, the Christ, the word of life, God in the flesh. This one who is, who was, and who is to come. He was shown to us. We have seen him and now we testify. And we proclaim to you that he is the one who is life. His life has become our life. Then we come to the book of Revelation. Oh my, I may start to preach. Verse 18 slide. Jesus stands victorious and he says, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. The death. And the realm of death Every authority in heaven and on earth is mine Every knee will bow Every tongue will confess My kingdom is established And the very gates of hell will not prevail against it Jesus stands before us and says, Look at me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And there is no other way. Do we realize who this is? This is the great I am. Standing before us, holding out this word of life and saying, come to me. Jesus goes on in Revelation chapter 2 and he addresses seven churches in Asia. And he begins with the church of Ephesus and he says, I know your deeds. You guys are playing church great, but I have a big problem with you. You just don't love me anymore. Return to your first love. Remember the height that you have fallen from. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Chapter 3, the church at Laodicea. I know your deeds. You're lukewarm. You are apathetic. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you're poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Let me ask you, can you be spit out of the mouth of God and still be okay? Does poor, pitiful, blind, naked, and wretched sound like salvation language to you? Jesus is pleading with us to have ears that hear and eyes that see. He says, repent and believe the good news. What's the gospel? That's the gospel. Because he has overcome sin and death. He has overcome everything that would, would stand in our way. And then in chapter 3 and verse 21, slide, Jesus says to those who overcome, to those who can overcome the babylons of this earth, the temptations of all this world's kingdoms, if you can overcome that, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. And then in, in chapter four, we get this glimpse inside of this throne room. Have you read this lately? We see the Lamb of God standing in the middle of the throne bearing the marks of death. The ground is shaking peals of lightning are coming out of this thing. Flames of fire. And there's 24 elders and they're throwing down their crowns and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come slide. Come slide. Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let us stand right now in this auditorium with all of creation and glorify the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I Am.